At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Bokey, and you're listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This episode is sponsored by Peak Fishing. Peak offers a wide range of fly tying vices and accessories that are all designed by mechanical engineers who both tie flies and fly fish. Peak's design philosophy is based on optimal functionality and efficiency, all while keeping a fair price point. Manufactured and assembled in Loveland, Colorado, there are many reasons to love this company. I myself have been using their products for years, and I'm proud to have them as a regular sponsor of this show. Check them out at www.peakfishing.com. You may know Jerry French better than you think you do. As co-owner of Olympic Peninsula Skagit Tactics, or OPST for short, Jerry French and Ed Ward are the originators of the intruder fly, as well as some of the driving forces behind Skagit casting. In this two-part podcast, I meet with Jerry at his home on Camano Island to see if I can learn a little more about this very private man. I was born in Ventura, California. I was a, I was adopted at birth to um, Jackie Williams at the time and Jerry Williams, my namesake, Jerry Wesley Williams. And um, my mom quickly divorced Jerry and being the little rambunctious soul that she was, she hooked up with some guy <laughs> that was this crazy outdoor cowboy and we moved to Alaska. And we lived like the wilderness family in Houston, Alaska from the time I was four until I was 10. And it was truly living off the land, kind of, we lived in two 
Um, they were old army, it was a radio station is what it was, two old army Quonset huts and the Marty was his name had bought the property and it was like 45 miles off the main road. So in the wintertime we were very stuck. And in the summertime we didn't go to town much except for what we needed. Like certifiably off the grid. Yeah. I mean, and I was homeschooled by my mom and you know, we shot moose and smoked fish and had sled dogs and the whole nine yards. And then my mom's sickness kind of got a little bit more intense and there were some other issues up there as well just being out in the bush all the time and we bailed and came back to the states and i basically spent a month in arlington or in marysville and then we moved right back to arlington so i came to arlington high school and uh my first year in arlington i of course you know there's there's this there's this culture, this social shock that I went through. I grew up like a little wilderness boy. I was hunting and trapping and fishing. And I come back to the society where kids are packing around, you know, $6 million man lunchboxes and stuff. And I was like, <laughs> what's the point of that? You know, none of it really made sense to me. Shot my first moose when I was seven years old from my dad's lap. You know, so I had a different perspective than most kids did. Yeah. So my very first day back to school, I get beat up by two brothers that became really good friends of mine later. Okay. So it was socially really hard for this transition. I didn't, I was, I, I got held back a year. I got stuck out in the special kid portables and stuff and stuck out like a sore thumb. Everybody was like, who's this kid? And so, you know, eventually I settled in and made some friends in Arlington, but it literally within... By the time I was a freshman in high school, I was very intrigued by the whole fly fishing thing. Why though? Why do you think? It, what it was directly is it was it, it it's the it's the simplicity of the whole thing that you know the act of casting was I was enamored with that originally. But once I became a fly fisherman, I was more enamored with the fishing. Mm-hmm. You know, I was more enamored with what they were doing down there, how my fly appealed to them, the the unseen stuff going on, and. I, I was a hardcore trout bum for a very short period of time. Once I caught my first Dilaguamish steelhead, everything changed. But the the nucleus of that interest was Walt Johnson. I grew up with a brother, a family of brothers called the Baker Boys. And they were a real close group of guys. Um, a whole bunch of brothers. There were five brothers, you know, all the way down to like nine years old. And John and Brian were in my grade, or Brian was one grade below me. Their grandfather was Walt Johnson. Which is so cool. Walt yeah. Johnson is. Yeah. Is. Yeah. I mean, these guys, they were some of the first guys to go fish the Thompson with wool socks taped over their boots and stuff. <laughs> I mean, talking to him about that, I remember him saying that they went there. The very first time they went there, it was so slippery that most of the guys couldn't get off the beach. In old rubber, rubber waders. Yeah, I, I actually believe that. Yep. They couldn't even get off the beach. They were horrified. So they were in these big, you know, trying to, the, the trick was, was wool socks taped to your boots. That was the trick. On and, the outside. Yep. On the outside. <laughs> so they had, you know, the first felts, I guess, you know, oh, cause they're all amazing. rubber booted waders and stuff. Yeah. So, you know, and then you go into Walt's house and Walt has like second world war, that, or was it the First World War? It's hard to say. <laughs> but yeah. he had, Orvis had made these first impregnated bamboo rods. And that was ski pole technology from the Second World War or First World War. I don't remember which it was. <laughs> but he had a whole bunch of these rods and just piles and piles of silk lines and a 27-inch mounted sea run cutthroat on the wall. 
you know, that he, he caught on dead drifted dry fly in the elbow hole. And so I was so enamored with his passion, his lifelong passion of this pursuit of these steelhead, you know, and then when I learned that they were just a sea run rainbow trout, that was all it took. It was, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. The lights come on. And so I go start to pursue these, you know, these sea run rainbows. And once I caught my first one, that was the end of it. It was I, the only trout that I, you know, like, I guess knowingly would pursue were, you know, Alaskan rainbows, any resonant fish, it was Alaskan rainbows. But beyond that, it was all steelhead fishing. And how old are you now at this time? Uh, I'm, well, I'm, what am I? I just turned 20. Okay. Yep. So it was like, you're out of high school now. Yep. I was out of high school. I dabbled with it while I was in high school, but you know how that goes. You're partying, doing all that kind of stuff. And you know, they, it's just, you know, when you can fit it in. But soon as I graduated, it was, I migrated straight to it. You know, that's, I, I had all these possibilities of jobs in the aerospace industry and stuff that, you know, I could have and I didn't want. I wanted to be a guide. I wanted to fish. That's all I wanted to do. So did you start guiding at 20? Um, I started guiding when I was 23. I actually spent a few years kind of building my chops, feeling like I needed to kind of build my skill set, you yes. know, and really become an angler so I could benefit those that I guided. The real downfall to it was, as I looked at 22, I looked like I was 14. So it was... A, <laughs> like you physically looked like you were yeah, 14. I did. Because you're 49 now. Yeah. And you do I, not look like I you're 49. I was super baby face. Not and so face. it was like, my clients would get off the airplane and they'd be like, what? And he goes, <laughs> I've fished twice as long as you've been alive. And I'm like, listen, mister, I'm 200 days a year minimum. <laughs> Okay, I think I got this covered. You know, now, was I, this in Alaska? Yeah, Alaska was the hardest sell. When any any guiding I did in Washington, it was easy because it was people I knew. It was <clears throat> a lot of word of mouth. You should go out with Jerry. I didn't advertise anything. You should go out with Jerry or Ed. Okay. And, you know, we just took people fishing. We showed them a good time. We were guiding them, but we weren't taking money. We okay. were just taking people fishing. So and, you're guiding in Alaska and in Washington. Um, I'm taking people fishing in Washington, but I'm technically guiding in Alaska. Got it. Yeah. And my, what we did in Washington was just taking people out to get them their first steelhead. You know, that kind of thing. We had lots of buddies that came up here and never fished the Skagit or lots of people who had just wanted to catch the steelhead, see what it was all about. And so we'd take them out and show them what that deal was. But it was, it was growing up in this environment that made it inevitable for me to become a steelheader. I mean, I'm on the Stillaguamish, the, the Skagit River, the Sauk, the Skykomish. Those are all just a short drive away. So it was inevitable. And this is over 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Fishing was amazing. Yeah, it was. I I think. I mean, I've read. Oh, yeah. It was amazing. It was, you know, the Stilly still, we could fish Stilly. The Stilly didn't close. The Skagit, the Sauk, the Skykomish closed at the end of April, and the Stilly was still open. And there was a whole pile of true spring fish in there. Uh You know, those late April fish that... You know, maybe 10, 12 pounds are really big ones, but they fought like a wild animal and the river would be full of them. Oh, I love you know? it. So we had it to ourselves. There was no one around. Everybody had taken off. They thought everything's closed. Nothing's fishing. Mm-hmm. And there was a little stilly just full of it. And we just stomp up and down that thing until we had to go to Alaska. So how many years did you guide in Alaska? Um, it, Alaska was a total of about 
five years and it was just kind of off and on because it honestly it would wear on me it'd build up to the point where i'd get really tired of the alaskan clientele yeah and you're like and every year you say that's it that's i'm not it. going I'm back not. next year and as soon as you're on get off the plane in in your home state you're just pining for it instantly go back. isn't you, it crazy how it yeah works? You, well that, that's human nature we forget the really heinous things mm. <laughs> that's <laughs> what we 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 have this selective memory. We forget those heinous things and remember all the it's, really great stuff. It was so fun. It's too. It's yeah. amazing. Do you remember the sunrises? Yeah, exactly. All the fish we caught. Yeah, exactly. The clients yelling at me all day long. How come there's no fish? Because it's super sunny, dude. We're not going to catch anything. You know? But you said we. So were you and Ed always going up together? Yeah. we. And I do say that a lot, too. And it's Ed and I were attached at the hip literally from the time that I met him. It was, it was just a, it was a natural connection. I met Deck Hogan first. I met Deck on the Sky Comish. He just walked just up randomly to randomly fishing? Yeah, he walked up to me. He's like, who are you? And he saw me casting from across the river and he's like, who are you? Yeah. And you and said, don't you know? Do you I know who I like, am? I was just like, who are you? You know, <laughs> I'm just some guy who fishes by myself and why are you bugging me? Yeah. You know? And so, you know, we talked and we kind of had a little bromance and it was really cool. He, super passionate, one of the most knowledgeable flora and fauna people I've ever met in my entire life. And so, you know, we had some dinner and we fished together and stuff. And I was noticing these pictures of this guy on the wall in his house. And I was like, who's this guy? Who's this Mexican guy or this Indian guy? And he's like, that's Ed Ward. And he's, he's Japanese. Guy. Well, everybody thinks he's either native, Mexican. You know, lots of people think he's native. Very few people even arrive at the Japanese. But, you know, he's Japanese-American. So through deck, I met Ed. And when I met Ed, Ed had come back from Unice and from working in Alaska, his guide season, and then he would go straight working on a processor boat. And then he came, he'd come back here usually about the 1st of January. And I was in a place called Ed Sporting Goods. It was like the gear or, you know, the tackle shop in Mount Vernon. And eventually the guy who owned Ed's, Kim, opened up Skagit Angler, which was a real popular fly shop here during the heyday of the Skagit. And then Kim just retired. And just to clarify, just because some listeners are from various parts of the world, mm-hmm. when you say the Skagit, you mean you do not mean the fly line. You mean the Skagit River. river. Is yeah. it? Haven't things gone a long way that now we oh, have to yeah. explain that the Skagit yeah. is a river it's and a not river. a line? Yeah, and it's Backwards, not pronounced Skagit. It's God, Skagit. And let's also just clarify that we're talking about a man named Edward, who is um, relatively well-known here in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Just clarify. I think it's hilarious that people associate the word Skagit more with lines than the river these days um, in various parts and, you know, in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. It just shows how far things have come. And and people, there's a lot of people that don't realize that the birth of all that was on that river, and that's why we called it that. And we're going to get there. We're going to talk about that. It's very important. Yeah, yeah. and it's it's just kind of interesting how that that kind of history just falls through the cracks. (laughs) And and to realize that the intruder made the Skagit line necessary. That's what drove the concept entirely was this fly that we were fishing. Mm -hmm. That's how it happened. And it was just the mother of invention, necessity. This stuff doesn't work, so we have to do something different. Well, let's get there. So you're in Alaska. When Okay, so we I met Deck, and then so I met Ed Sporting Goods. And I'm in Ed Sporting Goods. I don't even remember what I was there for. But I remember Deck telling some stories about Ed having these. He's got some pretty, Ed Ward has some pretty serious allergies. So... I'm walking around the shop and I hear this guy sniffling. And so I walk around the corner and sure enough, there's Ed 
And he looks at me and I look at him like we know each other because Deck had talked about both of us. Ah, uh, okay. So this was inevitable. We actually had a dinner date two nights later. And when we were done with dinner, we went outside. Ed wanted to go outside and sit on the porch and have a smoke. And he goes, go get your fly box. And so I go get my fly box and I come back. And of course I had a Wheatley box and all my flies are in my Wheatley box and Ed had a Wheatley box and both of us joked that neither one of us bought them. Clients had given them to us. <laughs> and so he was like, yeah, isn't that funny? I'd never buy one of these things. Couldn't afford the thing. Yeah. So we, we, I hand him his box. He hands me his. We open them up, and it was like we were looking at each other's fly boxes. Now, he and I had never said one word to each other about anything about fishing except for that conversation at dinner, and we were going deeper in this conversation on the porch while Ed had a smoke. We were both so dumbfounded by what we were looking at that it was almost like it was just natural for us to progress in this direction, and we did. We just we fished together every single opportunity we had. We started guiding in Alaska. We worked at Cat My Lodge. I worked with Deck. I worked with Scott O'Donnell. I worked with Scott Howell. I worked with Ed Ward. Um, there were there was other guys up there. There was um, man, there were a bunch of guys up there during that time. And our lodge owner at the time was a pretty aggressive dude, so none of us lasted there very long. Mm. But our time there was very productive. I mean, the time that I spent with Ed and I became extremely good friends with Scott Howell. And so our our mutual interests, we had planned on going to BC and stuff together after our first year up there. And of course, that all came to fruition. We did our guide season, packed ourselves up, went up to Alaska, or came back home, met up, road tripped up to BC. The first place we stopped, of course, was on the Maurice. We got to fish the Maurice because that's the first thing we come through with our death march from here. We drive straight through. The only stops were for coffee and gas. And that was it. <laughs> we're getting there. And if it was too dark to fish when we got there, we slept until it was time to fish. But if it was light enough to fish, we just fished. And then we, we got plenty of time <laughs> guys, to sleep later. You guys <laughs> yeah. are menaces. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah, we were. We were menaces. <laughs> we were. I know for a fact that the whole – I'm pretty certain that we're responsible for the necessity of – that whole let's get the Americans off those PC rivers because oh. <laughs> we were. Oh, I don't we, think it's we, you guys. I, I think we may have started the wave because it, it was, may have been various European uh, anglers who yeah, yeah, <laughs> they, they put the bad taste. Yeah, sure. but there were you know it was for us it was a huge learning experience. It was yeah. a giant learning curve. We got to go up and for me BC was always the place where you went to go get your fish fix. We worked really really hard down here for one or two fish for maybe a week and. Um, going to BC was that was a fix, but it was an, also an opportunity to kind of prove some ideas because mm. of how good the fishing could be. You could actually, you could actually do a little case study and come up with maybe a solid hypothesis on something, you know, and, and feel good about this. This actually works. This is viable. This is possible, you know, and that's what BC did for us. And of course, cool. it was super, super fun. We got to catch cobs and cobs of steelhead, you know, and we were, and it was different then too. It was very peaceful up there still. You know, we'd camp on the Sesqua and just walk up river, you know? Right. Just, Ed would be on one side of the river and I'd be on the other and I'd be watching my best friend catch steelhead on the other side of the river. Well, I'd be hooked up at the same time. You know, <laughs> it was, it was super cool. But that time for us was a, was a really, it was super important in the evolution of the intruder because we were, 
the, the concept was born in Alaska. These very large flies that we were tying on 8X long limerick style hooks mm-hmm. and the biggest Bartleets we could find. I remember. Yep. I mean, huge, huge <laughs> flies. And a lot of them were tied with um, turkey flats. That was the original movie material because we had a lot of turkey hunter f- friends who just inundated us with turkey carcasses. So we had all these beautiful wild turkey feathers. And that was like the first feather. And so tied in what application though? Where they are you were, putting it? They, I, I was doing a lot of stuff that was like a scrubby, like three stations on really, really long hooks. Okay. You know, maybe three stations and they were very uscrub like they did. They had three stations, bodies of tinsel or dubbing, you know, maybe a jungle cock wing, maybe a jungle cock tail, but it was just big. And I knew that what I realized right away is that these big flies, they, the fish ate them very aggressively, but there was a very obvious downfall. Basically, 75% of the fish that I landed were bleeding profusely. Almost every single fish I landed was bleeding profusely on those really big hooks. And then, and roughly, I'd say easily 85, even 90% of the fish I hooked I lost. Long leverage. Of course, you've got this huge, you know, you've got four inches of hook hanging yeah. out of its mouth. Massive it's moment. Tearing yeah. at the maxillary, its mouth is going to rip off. Yeah, I mean, the, the hook's in there yarking away like crazy. And a lot of those drop point hooks are, they're cutters. That's yeah. what they do. They're, they're grabbers. And so they make large, horrible wounds. And so that was unacceptable to me. I admire these things with all my heart. I love them. And the to do such horrible damage to something that I'm going to catch and release something needed to be done. But these big flies were really productive, and I loved the way they ate them. They crushed them. You know, there was no nibble-nibble. They were on, and the reel was screaming most times. But and how how did these big flies um, differ from, say, the original Scottish patterns, the really big, you know, four-aught Atlantic I, Salmon? I think that they were they were the same. They were just our vision of big. You right. know what I mean? And the only difference I'd say was is that we... I had a lot, I had a few friends, well, I had a friend who was a professor up at Western. He was a biology professor and he, he, he knew how much I loved steelhead. So any information that he had on steelhead, he would hand off to us. And anything that he thought that we didn't know, he'd hand off to us. Right. Anything about any, any anatomist fish or feeding habits or anything like that, he'd hand off to us. Most of it, I could barely read this stuff. I mean, it was so wordy and go on forever. And eventually got to the point where he would just highlight the stuff that mattered. And then I would actually get the point of it. And before it would just be giant piles of someone's thesis, you know, and right. I'd just be rooting through it going, okay, what am I supposed to do with this, Dave? <laughs> you know, but what ended up happening is we instantly realized that there was a very, very big difference between the classic Atlantic salmon patterns and the way they were tied. And what they represented to us was basically nothing. You know what I mean? They were just these extremely long-seated, traditional patterns that people tied. Hat decor. Yeah. And so for us, it was the kind of thing where what I understood our beloved steelhead forged on in the ocean, I wasn't seeing any representation of it whatsoever in steelhead. what was this in the ocean that they're foraging on? Squid. Prawns, bait fish, whatever their little individual niches suited. 
So you're looking from an imitation standpoint going, okay, well, that's a pretty fly. Right. But best suited for a hat. It doesn't at all suit a prawn. Yeah, it doesn't represent anything that our coastal fish are feeding on. And we believe when we know that we live close enough to the coast that the fish that we're feeding on still have that conditioned response Mm -hmm. to go and explore what that is that they're so intrigued by. But the guys in the 60s knew this. They're harvesting fish. They're gutting them. They can see the shrimp in their stomachs. How come they didn't decide to, to tie longer, more imitation? Flies? I think they did in a, to a point. I mean, there were like, you know, you look at, what do they call that? The polar shrimp. Okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and we're still running along a heroin game. And then the GP came along. I love the GP. Everybody loved the GP. I love the GP. I tied it and I tied it and I tied it. Why? Because it was the one thing that represented to me. The other thing that represented to me, and this is, was through conversation I was a very solitary angler when I started to steelhead fish. I fished by myself for about six years before I met anybody that, before I met Deck. But I would have casual conversations with individuals on the river that honestly I didn't know their names until I met Deck and Ed and then realized that I was like talking to Bob Strobel, Harry Lemire, Jerry Wentel, and I mean, Walt. those names that you're mentioning, people who are new to the sport don't realize what you're saying right yeah, now. Yeah, where that comes from. Like, this you know, is, these, these are the old guard who weren't old guard because they knew how to be marketed or how to write books. These are old guard because these guys changed the game and they knew their stuff. Yeah, they fished. They were fishermen. Mm-hmm. And they traveled around the world in pursuit of their favorite thing. And that was Ernagimus fish, whether it was steelhead or sea run browns or king salmon. Those guys were just traveling around. They were students of the swung fly, but they were also bound by an old guard knowledge and love for the tradition of Atlantic salmon fishing. And then you come in. Then we come in. Then the testosterone gang arrived on the scene. Yeah, which I still don't <laughs> understand why you guys are called the testosterone gang. Because it, it, I've spent the day with you. Yeah. It and was I, great. I'm way more laid back than I used to be. Okay. Yeah. We were we were literally... You're just not macho at all to me. You're just super chill. And that's, that's just the way we were. But we're also... We... We'd spend the night on bars. We'd camp on places that we wanted. Okay, so you guys were like the gung-ho game. Yeah, we were gung-ho. We were so gung-ho that everybody else couldn't beat us to the river, so we became the testosterone game. Okay. And as soon as you start to interfere with someone else's good time, they're not too stoked about you anymore. No. You know, so if you came down river on a float and you saw Jerry and Ed stretched out on both sides of the river in this one or two or three different spots then you start to get kind of sick of seeing us and eventually it turned into a testosterone game. As a matter of fact, there's a piece of water on the sock that's called Jerry's. It's because I lived on it. I owned it. If I wanted it and there were fish around, you were not going to get that piece of water. (laughs) Okay, so we've got the gang. We've got TG. (laughs) Yeah, we were the gang. And so those guys, they, they talked about stuff. And what I learned from Harry in passing is that we talked about sculpins. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Harry was a big fan of fish and sculpins, and so was I. And that came from my love for trout. And what I knew about trout is trout, they love to eat sculpins, but they also hate them. And so does every anagemous fish on the planet. They hate sculpins. Why? Because they root in their reds. And they root in their reds, and they're this little mysterious fish that can sit in the red while they're dropping and just mow and mow and mow, just gobble up eggs like crazy. And so for anybody who's spent any time in Alaska, 
All you have to do is just observe at the back end of any big, huge spawning flat, and one of the most obvious things are piles of dead sculpin carcasses. Right? Dead. Dead. Why? Because the salmon are munching them. They're killing them. Not to feed on them. Not to feed on them, but to get them the hell out of their reds. So, now you go back to the steelhead. Now, the steelhead, as a youngster, is going to happily feed on that sculpin. And I suppose when he comes climbing out of his 24 inches of gravel as an Ivan with his egg attached to him, that sculpin is his biggest enemy. So Harry believed that Steelhead hated them and also consumed them, looked them as a food source. And so I started fishing the sculpins, and I fished them more behind people and than I did by myself. I'd usually fish some other, you know, favorite fly when I was fishing something I knew no one was in front of me. But if I was fishing behind people, I started fishing my sculpins. Mm -hmm. And I started catching more fish behind people, and I was kind of surprised by this. And the way they ate the fly was really unique. And that was something that Harry and I agreed on 100% in conversation. Talking with him about that, he's like, yeah, it's really strange. It's almost like they're trying to masticate it. It's just weird. It's like, they're chomping on it or something. Okay, so like multiple takes. Yeah, and it's strange. It's like even once they have it in their mouth, it's like they're trying to smash it and get it out or something. You know, it's like they really hate them. And, you know, if, if a sculpin gets too big for a resident trout, it's a dangerous meal. So they attack them quite aggressively, and it's usually up towards the head, and they got to take them head first if they're going to eat them. I found trout that have choked on sculpin. Uh, absolutely. I've seen numbers of them in Alaska, and it's usually a fairly large sculpin, yeah, too. Yeah, And so a large sculpin is a very dangerous meal. Uh-huh. So yeah. they tend to hit them extremely hard, try uh-huh. to kill them, and then take them head first. This makes sense. Yeah. So in Alaska, we would do this thing where we would fish... Big, huge sculpins. We call them mega meals. Or we fish a snack pack. A snack pack. A snack pack is a smaller sculpin. Okay. The snack pack always outfished the larger sculpin because they were a less dangerous meal. That was at least my feeling behind it. They felt like, no problem. I can eat that thing. And they would eat that thing. So I started that interaction with Harry started this gear turning <clears throat> that made me think that everything that I was seeing in the fly world, and I was madly in love with tying the spay fly. And, and I noticed there was a lot of really cool movement in those flies. And that's what really moved me about them was their movement. And there were guys that were fishing, you know, these marabou spiders, they called them. And they had some nice movement, but they were just kind of a, this opaque beacon. You know, they didn't have any transparency. They didn't have any depth of color. They were just a bright wad of mashed potatoes and that's what they look like to me same with bunny leeches they they had no character they had no depth they didn't they moved but they didn't look alive and they were bright colors but there was nothing out there that actually had some presence and depth and movement and a lot of those bunny leeches and stuff they were a nightmare to cast you know, they, mm-hmm. they were horrible. To I remember. Yeah, yeah. They, they just weren't fun. Well, they suck up so much water. Yeah. And, and when you're Palmer in a full rabbit strip, that's a mm-hmm. lot of flesh. It is. You know, it's a lot of meat on there. So they get really heavy. And so there was, there was this natural progression to try to tie these things that were big, but not big in, in material, not big in volume. Right. And, and then eventually I ended up running, when I ran into Ed and we saw what were in each other's boxes then the light really clicked on. Okay. Yeah. So, and what, so was in, what was in the box? What were in the boxes were very similar giant flies. They were all tied on like 8X long, these limerick bend hooks that we found. Uh-huh. You know, both Ed and I were looking for the biggest hooks we could find. I remember those limerick hooks and 
the gauge on them is enormous. Enormous. It's it, it literally like a finish nail. Yeah, it's yeah. it really truly it, it is. Works. And yeah. we could. And what was really funny is that both of us would take a extreme amount of time to hone these points down, take the barb off entirely, and hone these points down to this long, finest little needle we could make. Try to make it penetrate really easily, and hopefully get it where it needed to be. And through you know, a lot of fish, we realized that, you know, you got a half inch to a three quarter inch long point. That's not a good thing for them. It mm -hmm. didn't matter. It was bad and they were hurt. All of them were. So in an evolution in Alaska, we just decided to cut the shank off, cut the hook off and put a Dacron loop on the back and literally just run the leader straight through it and tie a big enough knot that it wouldn't go through the Dacron loop and just let the hook dangle off the back. And these were like giant three station flies tied on those 8X long limericks straightened out. We'd heat them up with a lighter and then straighten them out. And then cut them off and detail the end so it was nice and round. It wouldn't abrade uh, your leader. That's how you guys did it. Because I used to sit there with my pliers yep. and bending and shaking until they and, or yeah. until I busted my hand on right. them. And that, you, okay, that's yeah, how you guys did it. That was it. So all you did is you took the temper out and you straightened them out. And you could get them as long as they were. Just straighten out the entire bend, pinch the barb, cut it off where you wanted it. And that was the evolution of it. Our first year the, in BC. I have to just pause you here because even though what you're saying to me... It makes perfect sense. Right. You're talking the story of my life here. But so what you're saying, just for people. Clarification. Yeah. Basically, um, we, we've cut off the, the curvature from the curvature. Right. Or if you wanted to maintain the length, you could cut off at the barb and then you could, you could then straighten it out from right. there. Yeah. But then because you obviously need to have a hook to hook a fish, what you do is you would take, I'm assuming you're, you said Dacron. Yeah. We just use a little at, tiny at Dacron point, loop at the very Just back. Dacron. Yep. Just Dacron. And you, you're tying in a loop and you can reinforce the loop so that it doesn't get pulled out. Right. And then that extends, say, half an inch or an inch out of the rear of, of it was, the Actually, it was just a tiny little loop, right? Super tiny. And the oh, reason... you didn't for, make it so it could interchange at this point? No. At this point, the, the leader ran straight through the fly like the original... You're tying the stinger in at the time of... At, at the time of the fly being built. Right. Well, no, no. Actually, what it was is that we straightened out the shank. Mm -hmm. We'd straighten out the shank, heat it up with a lighter, straighten out the shank, and then we'd cut it off. And then we would tie a tiny, like, I mean, literally the hole would be just big enough for the monofilament to go through. Oh! Yeah. And you're so, not even looped looping yet. Nope, not yet. So that oh. little tiny piece of Dacron, the mono went straight through. And what it, the idea was is that we were trying to see yes. that. So when we tie our our lefty cray non-slip loop onto our hook, the the loop was big enough that it wouldn't go back up through the Dacron. So the hook just dangled out the back. Oh, I'm happy that I clarified for all the people who don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I didn't know this. Okay, so... So it so, was basically just a trolley car and a leader. Yes, and I mean, I have I have tied those myself, so right. I know what you're talking about, but right. I didn't know that that's how you started. Yep, that's exactly how it started. And so the problem with that was is that... Well, there's a few problems with that. Let's go into them. Yeah, there was... It, 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 you know, you'd have to lace the leader through, and then sometimes if you made the Dacron big enough or too big... The, your knot would Go make through. its way up and then the hook would just be sitting in the Dacron loop. Yeah. So it, it didn't work right. So we did our whole BC trip. We, you know, we learned this in Alaska. It started working real good for Jack Kings and we were catching bigger and bigger trout on these things. Mm. And so it was really kind of opening our eyes. There's something to this. And now we are starting to catch more Kings on these things on the swing. And, and this is a time when swinging for Kings in Alaska was pretty much non-existent. It was mm. like people didn't even really think you could do it yet. 
And so we were fishing out of the boat. That's how we did all of our kicking fishing on the Alagnac, and most of it was gear. But there were the occasional clients, Arthur Oglesby's group would come up and okay. they were the best group in the world because they were super fun and all we were going to do was spay fish out of the boat and swing for kings that's all they wanted to do and then once they caught their one king we sat in the boat and we drank for the rest of the day i like so, those yeah clients. they were super super fun but arthur was instrumental in our evolution of that because arthur started sending us Waddington Shanks sending us huge copper tubes because he could see where we were going with all this. Because the Waddington Shank was around for ages. For ages. I mean, Waddington, you and Waddington would have been homeboys. Yeah, from what I understand, we'd have been <laughs> yeah. real tight. Yeah. So then what happened? So we, we went to BC the first year, and now what you have is you have myself, Edward, and Scott Howell all sleeping in the back of my Ford Explorer. You guys really do have a bromance. Yeah, we did. And <laughs> we, we slept like sardines in there, too. Yeah. Head to feet, head to feet. Now, you're talking three stinky dudes yeah. living in the back of an explorer. And it was not pleasant. And I'll, I'll admit that. It was absolutely <laughs> heinous. And and every year it evolved. And we got better and better. You at know, showering. Yeah, well, we no. got better at showering. We got better at setting up our camps. <laughs> yes, right? Yes, so yes. we're not all sleeping in the backs of the trucks. And, you know, we got a little bit better about it. Right. But... Those times in the, up in BC, what happened there was is that all three of us were on the exact same page. We were all thinking about the same thing at the same time in a different way. And like Scott would be the first one out of the truck every single morning and the last one back every single day. And he, he would always tell us where he was going, and some days we'd fish together. But a lot of the time, all three of us would go our own separate ways. And then we would all reconvene back at the truck, and we would share the day's experience and what happened and blah, 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 and what flies were working and what happened. Oh, God, you wouldn't believe how they ate this thing. Every single fish crushed it. And so we would all summarize and talk about it, and then we would tie flies. And every single night, there was this exponential huge jump in understanding of what we were tying and what was working and the flies got sparser and bigger and sparser and bigger and we started to realize that this whole hook rigging thing we had going was just a bunch of malarkey when we got back from bc that year ed and i lived together we lived together for about five years and we lived here on Camano island on Lost Lake. Ed rented a room and I rented a room from the same guy. And when we came back, Ed and I tied at the same vice. We just left the vice at the table and we would just tie and tie and tie like crazy men. Well, we came back and I sitting at the table and I'm looking at this shank and I'm thinking to myself, if we could only make it like these tubes that Arthur sent us where we can actually oh. engage the hook on the back. He sent you shanks and tubes? Yeah, he sent us he sent us um, Waddington shanks and lots of copper tubes. Cool. And so the copper tubes for us were cool. We loved how the hook removed and all the swing weight or leverage slid up the leader and then you were left with your hook of choice. This whatever wonderful fish-friendly hook you could come up with or what made it really cool is if you could use 
you could use a size four for your trout on the same huge fly, and you could use a size one or a two or whatever you want to fish for kings. You could use the same fly, just change the hook. I love that about yeah, it. Yeah, and it, it just became this thing where not only were we able to use the fly that we wanted to use, but we could use a hook that was appropriate for what we were pursuing. Mm -hmm. And now we were no longer damaging the fish that we were catching, or at least not mortally damaging them, but we were using appropriate sized hooks. I mean, people need to know this. Remember in the spoon, did you ever fish spoons? Oh yeah. I was a big spoon junkie. Yep. yep. And Swing I used and spoons, to, so much fun. Yeah. I yeah. used to buy all my gibbs and I would have to take all, all of the hooks off, the hooks off yep. and buy a package of split rings. And I even had a pair of special pliers that would help me to get it all yep. off. And then I'd replace them with more, you know, um, more friendly, like fish friendly hooks. Right. And it was just standard to have these enormous hooks. Yeah, giant long things with huge barbs, and some of the hooks were just absurd. Awful. So, yeah, awful. what was on the market at the time? Were you guys using bait hooks, or did they yep. have octopus hooks up yep. at that they, point? Well, they they had variations of them. What Ed Ed coming from Michigan had a whole bunch, just a, this huge menagerie of hooks, because he was a gear fisherman yeah. when he was in the Midwest. And he fly fished and stuff too. They actually built a lot of gear rods out of fly rods. Mm -hmm. And so they were, they fished a lot of really small stuff. But Ed built a lot of his own little lures and spoons and stuff. And so he had this huge collection of hooks that he liked. And so we picked through those and kind of found the character that we liked. And then they started coming out with all these really cool little bait hooks, like the Gamagatsu bait hooks, the side drift hooks, all that kind of stuff. And these nice little short shanked hooks with these nice round bends and nice short little points that were fish friendly and more than adequate of doing what we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So now we got to the point where we know that we've got a solid idea, but the platform itself was... Uh, really hokey. The whole Dacron loop thing was just really iffy. It didn't work very good. And we also wanted to be able to ride the hook up. We wanted to be able to fix it so it was riding up. It had a position in the fly and it didn't flop around. It didn't flip up and get fouled. It stayed in the back where it was supposed to riding precisely where it was, where we wanted it to be. Why didn't you want it riding down? Um, we wanted it riding hook point up. But why didn't you want it riding down? Um, so they wouldn't snag. That was more bottom. of our thinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just so they wouldn't snag on the bottom. Because contrary to popular belief, our intruders, I have never tied an intruder with heavy weight. Unless I'm fishing somewhere like where Scott Hell fished on the North Umpqua, where you require heavy weight to get them down. Because of the pocket water? Yeah. And they're real trenchy. You know, they, there's ditches, there's places on the North Umpqua where you can walk in knee-deep water, take one more step, and you're in 22 feet of water. Mm. And it's a straight, sheer wall down through it, real basalt, edgy stuff. So, completely different drainage. And, you know, we're talking classic freestone streams, what we're, we're used to fishing. So, there were places with huge boulders with really slow current where, you know, the intruders were all tied with extra small eyes. So, the fly, it had a predictable sink rate and a predictable rise rate. It wasn't a cannonball dredger. But don't those eyes automatically flip it so that the hook rides point up anyway? Yep. So, they were a keel, Right. Then what we wanted was is we all the eyes were tied on the bottom of the shank, and then the hook was designed to ride up. Got it. And you could run it down if you wanted. There's guys that like to run them down, and so. But for us, we wanted it riding up. I wanted it to keep it from anything that it rode over because we wouldn't. You know, if there was a piece of wood in front of you, we fished over the wood. Fish love to lay around those vertical logs mm -hmm. and stuff, and. I'm not going to pull out of a log jam if I know the thing's going to fish well. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So we, you know, we wanted to learn. We wanted to lengthen, deepen our understanding of what we were pursuing. And so we fished everything in front of us. We right. didn't question anything. We'd fish from top to bottom or run straight through from one run into the other. And if anybody's ever fished this gadget, I mean, they're enormous <laughs> pieces of water. So you learn to fish fast and stay focused. But what, as we evolved through this, we realized that this platform needed to change. So one night while we were sitting in the house, I just had this brainstorm. What will fit over the back of that hook shank? What will fit over the back of that hook shank? And so I started wandering around the house. And I walked into my room, burned out, tired of thinking about it, sat down, reached over, turned on my stereo, and my speaker wire was hanging on the corner of my bed. And I stuck my arm up through it, and I yanked it out of the back of the stereo because I was fixing my pillow. And it was laying right in front of me. And I looked at it, and I just went, holy crap. And I literally just lopped off a chunk of it with my pocket knife, and I ran out to to the table. And I, you know, stripped a piece of it off and stuck it on the back of the hook and was like, oh, my God. (laughs) That's it. And so I sat down. I straightened out a shank. And we, at this point... I went from the Dacron loop to a little tiny monofilament loop. And I left enough room to slide that speaker wire on and then pull in the speaker wire. I left enough so I could pull my knot up inside the speaker wire. And I left this whole thing sitting on top of the fly tying vise. And I went to bed. Well, how does the speaker... I'm, I'm having a hard time with my imagery here. So... The monofilament loop... Little tiny monofilament loop. ...is enough in itself, though, to loop a stinger hook on. Nope. It's tiny, tiny, tiny. So it's why... All it's big enough. At this point, had it not clicked in yet, we could just tie a monofilament loop? Yeah, we could just do a big loop in the back. But for us, just putting a big loop in the back, you still have swing weight. You still have the fly... The right. weight of the fly is still attached, and we oh, want a but, path... But of, had you not thought of the loop-to-loop system yet? Um, No. At this time, there we weren't stinger looping anything. Okay, we so were this still time, trying to we were trying to mimic the function of a tube. Okay, so yeah. the the monofilament loop is not an option because you're thinking about just basically putting it on as if it were a non-slip loop knot. So of course it's yeah, it's so going to swing. It's yeah. going to swing. Okay, so how does the wire come into play then? The, it's the insulation that I'm talking about. I oh, okay, wire okay, insulation. Okay. Got it, got it, know? got it, got it. So it was speaker wire insulation. I realized that the speaker wire insulation, it was pliable enough, flexible enough to slide onto the cut detailed shank edge oh. and, and then be able to pull your leader up through it and secure the hook on the back. Of course. Okay. So okay, when okay. the fish ate, the hook popped loose, all the leverage slid Slides up through up. the leader, and yeah. the only thing left in their mouth was Small this beautiful little hook. hook. Yep. And it. so now all the leverage is gone, and the only thing left is this beautiful little fish-friendly hook in their mouth. So I left that rigging in the vise, and it was just sitting there. When I woke up in the morning, Ed had tied a fly on it, because he's a super early riser. And uh, he was he was just like, that's freaking brilliant, dude. That's absolutely brilliant. And so we, that's, we ran off in that direction. And I, I mean, it was, that was it for us forever. It was like, here it was. And then the evolution of the intruder, the actual intruder itself and the fly that we called the intruder came after that. In the, well, the speaker wire incident was in the what? Was this in the late eighties, early nineties? Uh, early nineties. Okay. Early nineties. Yeah. So 
the true intruder pattern. This is one of my biggest pet peeves. I'm so sick and tired of people calling all flies that are large intruders. (laughs) It is so insulting to the people who do design different fly patterns. I mean, I know I sound like a real snob right now, but it's it's like calling all, it's like calling all Scottish patterns or all spade flies, Lady Carolines. Right. But they're they're, they're they're not. not. And they didn't. And those guys were really, 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 really critical about this is this pattern and this is why this is this pattern and that's why we call it And if you think that we're dorky, I get that. That's cool. But at the end of the day, it comes down to what what facts are. And the fact is is that just because a fly is large does not make it an intruder. So can you please explain what the true intruder pattern is? What what it is, is it what we considered the intruder. (laughs) And there was even a lot of a debate within our own circle of this. What we called the intruder clan. Myself, Scott, Powell and Edward, and there was one other guy in the equation that just vanished, and he kind of came in after the intruder was an established pattern. But he 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 contributed a lot. He was a, his name was Tucker English. He was a spectacular caster, beautiful caster in a time when no one could cast, a beautiful caster, a beautiful soul, and an incredible fly tire. And so he was completely enamored with the intruder and he got it. So he was also tying, doing his own thing. He hung out with us in BC and stuff. And then he just kind of disappeared from the scene. But that what it was for us that created a true intruder was sparse two stations. When it, now, when you say stations, you mean areas of volume. Volume. You would okay. have, you would have your dubbing. D- dubbing. We'll just start from the back. You would have a dubbing ball. Either a twin tail. Of what, though? And the dubbing ball that it was, at the time, polar bear and seal fur were the big game. Okay. That was what we used. Go Canada. Exactly. Polar bear, seal fur. And the reason for that is, and it's not just because they were the material, it's because they're transparent, because they don't soak up water, and it's also because they're super crinkly. They have built-in structure. Right. When you stuck those things in a dubbing loop... They stayed. They made shoulders, and they look gorgeous in the water. They're like battery operated. If you dub seal fur or polar bear over a tinsel body and stick it in the water, that thing looks like it's battery operated. It's amazing. And the thing about them is they don't hold too much water, so they don't collapse when there's fibers on top of them. Yeah. they It's a nice, robust, full shoulder. And And you could make them sparse, too. Exactly. So what do you now have going on? What hackle do you have going over top of that? So what we would do is it would usually be a seal fur dubbed body in the back, maybe a little short tinsel right in front or behind your little tiny monofilament loop that your leader was going to slide through there, yeah. yep this little tiny monofilament loop that your leader would slide through there'd be a little tag of tinsel the monofilament loop and then there'd be a dubbing ball of a contrasting color let's say i'll go, just go with my favorite fly is like sid glasso's orange heron i would use regular ostrich dark ostrich or orange ostrich in the back but you would have a hot pink little focal eye is what we called it and then you would have your polar bear shoulder Dubbing ball first, polar bear shoulder, and then sometimes we would put some schloppen in there maybe, Mm -hmm. or we would put some Amherst in a dubbing loop Mm -hmm. and palmer that in front. And then for me and Ed, the twin tail was our favorite thing where you would put, you know, five, six, eight fibers, depending on their thickness of ostrich on the flanks of the fly Mm -hmm. where Scott really liked a stinger tail, which was a single tail out the back. And then you would have a large tinsel space in between the next shoulder. Why tinsel? Why not just nothing? Why not just 
the tinsel was reflective. It created depth in the fly. It recreated reflection through the fly, back out through the fly, and through the materials. It gave the fly depth and presence. Did you counter-wrap so you weren't constantly breaking off? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so you counter-wrap with wire. Yep. Then you go into a second station, so you've got more dubbing. And basically a repeat of what you did in the back. Exactly. Except for it would be a large, palmered hackle tip. Right. So just a little bit more full as yep. all natural. I mean, most natural fish anyway have that natural taper. Right. And so you guys are doing the same thing. Yep, exactly. Okay, so really, I mean, and then did you whip finish or did you add a third station? Um, well, stations? there were generally, like for me, my favorite was a tented wing of some type of hackle. Okay. You know, and it almost was always some type of saddle hackle. Right. And um, I, that's what I used to see in the early patterns. Yep. So you guys would often put this this wing of, of grizzly hackles, if you will. Yep, exactly. Okay. Like what you just described there is exactly what like I would tie, for example, but I put jungle cock cheeks in. Right. And I just I would call it an intruder variation. I didn't know what the hell to call it. I called yeah. it a sugar pop because yeah. that's what it looked like. <laughs> so was I tying an intruder? Absolutely. So it is an intruder. Yeah, and so for us, th- this is how it is. The intruder's not a, pla- a, a pattern. It's a platform. It's ah, a conceptual platform. That's what I wanted to know. Anything that you want to add to that, as long as it falls within that sparse, swimmy, two-station thing. It can be a single-station intruder if you want, but the idea is that it's sparse and even nowadays, I would say that it's tied with ostrich. Oh, that, so you are that, an original ostrich. Absolutely. The ostrich thing for us, Ed and I started using feather dusters. We walked into a, as a matter of fact, what ended up happening is I was rooting through our roommates, the guy who's renting our house, our landlords. I was rooting through his cleaning cupboard and I found a feather duster. Right. An ostrich feather duster. <laughs> And I walked out with it, and I showed it to Ed, and Ed was like, holy shit. And he grabs it from me, and he grabs the tip of one of the feathers, and he pulls it over just to see how palmerable it was. And he was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. So we commenced to, you know, disassembling this feather duster. We did. We unwrapped all the wire, took every single feather off of it, graded them out, figured out. We were just totally enamored with this feather. We were like, look at this thing. It's beautiful. But they're all gray. Right? Yeah. They're all gray. Wait, was no one, but no, they were selling dyed ostrich at the time for Atlantic salmon patterns, nope. but they put them in, in the butts of Atlantic oh, salmon Oh, patterns. right. But that, those were, what those were, were those were the big plumes. Very plumy. Okay, Huge so you guys plumes. were looking for thin, not overly plumy ostrich. Right. And so what we discovered, once we started to really fell in love with this feather duster feather, we realized that we could take and split that feather starting at the base of the feather. And down at the stem of it, right where it comes out of the bird. And we would have a contest. We would literally sit at the table and see how far up that feather you could split it with a backbone razor blade, a rigid razor blade. That was you guys who started that. Yep. And so we would sit at the table and literally it was like a total pissing contest to see how far up the feather you could split this thing and then detail it so you could use the whole damn thing. Yeah, so what you're doing is you're wrapping the membrane. Yep. But why didn't you guys just cut them and stack them? It, because they didn't have the same profile? Not at all. They didn't move the same. They didn't create these really sparse, tenty type, very large swimming profiles. Now, the membrane on the ostrich is, is a pretty thick membrane. Yeah. But, so, I mean, it's hard. And because I actually don't use ostrich, I, I do use Rhea. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't have any experience with splitting the ostrich. But 
I know with the rhea, when I, when I do use the wrap membrane, mm-hmm. what ends up happening is it oftentimes will end up splitting, um, whether it be huh. because of a cast or because uh-huh. of fish teeth or something. Right. And when you, when you pull it back in, you, you know, you, you strip in this swirly end or this curly end of, right. of rhea membrane. So how the, did you get around that? The way to get around it was, is that we would, okay, so you split the feather, you've got all the core and then you have the membrane or the actual skin of the you know, the, the skin of the stem, we would split those straight down the middle and then we would actually detail them again. We would trim off the whole top edge, trim off the whole bottom edge. So it had a single flat platform just coming straight out of the fibers. Uh, We would then take that chosen piece of feather and stick it in piping hot water. The piping hot water then saturates the material. Mm -hmm. Once the material saturated, it's considerably stronger. Now, when you wrap it onto the feather, there's no stress in the membrane at all. It won't break, and when it dries up, it compresses and creates this really robust shoulder. And the feather itself now is it's wet bound on there, just like you would rawhide handle on something. But what happens when it gets wet again? Does that make any difference? No, nope, it didn't make any difference at all because it was done. It's getting wet, cold. It was done in wet, hot water. So the cold water, all it's going to do is make it contract where the hot water made it expand. And once we tied it on, it contracted back down tightly onto the shank. The most important things to us is that we looked at it like we weren't fly tires. We were creature constructors. We were engineering flies. So we were building these things so they wouldn't fall apart. You know, they, we wanted them to last. They took forever for us to tie. Yeah. So if we lost them or we, they fell apart, we were mad about it. And the truth is, is if they didn't swim absolutely perfect, the fly got cut off, it got put in the pocket, and we recycled everything on that fly. We would literally take them apart from the front to the back, cut all the thread, and then unwind hackles, throw them in a warm bowl of water, they'd straighten right back out. Yeah. You'd save jungle cock eyes, you'd save the little monolithic. Did you guys back. use jungle cock eyes? Yeah. Yep. Just for aesthetics or? Yeah, I, I, I think the jungle cock is magic. It, I really do. I believe it's magic. I've, I have dirty hoe patterns that are, I've, I've actually had a number of fish in the last few years eat while I was reeling up, while I was stripping in, and they just destroy the things. And all the intruders I tie with jungle cock eyes, whether it's a jungle cock, big long jungle cock wing on it, or their two little eyes in the back like a prawn or something, mm-hmm. all those are always my favorite flies. They, and, and they do, if you look at a jungle cock eye in, up against the light, they're transparent. They're, they have a lot of presence. The jungle cock made us realize that this contrast was really important. It, these flies, a lot of the flies, if I look back through historical pictures, the flies were bright in the black, transitioning into darker in the front. Mm-hmm. And and the ostrich now for us was this this feather that we could go out and we could go down to the you know to the uh, um, the household supply store or like the kitchen store and then just buy all their feather dusters for 11 bucks and then go home and dye the things, you know? And so we started experimenting with how to bleach them out. And then that doesn't work so good because you start to burn the barbules and stuff on them. Mm -hmm. And so we happened upon this batch of feather dusters that were these modeled white feathers 
and we were, okay, this is it. So we bought every feather duster they had. There were like 16 of them, if I remember correctly. Ed and I bought every single one of them. The lady looked at us like we were crazy. She thought we were like starting a business or something. And we said, no, we're time flies. And she was just like, what? <laughs> and we got this giant bag full of feather dusters, a couple giddy little kids. Like we just got a Christmas, the best Christmas present ever. So we went home, took all these things apart. And through that, we realized that this feather that they use in the feather dusters are called drafts. Within the industry, the feather, that feather is called a drab. And the reason is, is that they consider it just a piece of shit. It's, that was all it was good for is for feather dusters because decoration people want these big, beautiful plumes for their hats or for costumes. They were always the big colored, giant, plumy feathers, all these tail feathers. And the drab is essentially just a flank feather. And there's tons of them on the bird. And they're just, I guess people use them in crafts and stuff now because I see them, a lot of them, you can buy them at craft stores and stuff. The dye jobs aren't very good on those, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> they will fade. I bet. <laughs> um, maybe the first time you stick them in the water. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> Put them in your visor, they're done. Yeah, they're done. So we realized that this drab was a big deal. This was a, and it, what was cool about the drab is that the fibers were an ideal length. What is an ideal length? Well, it, you know, within that three to four inches, mm-hmm. you know, because if you get too long, then you're just as big as the whole fly. And we wanted the first station to be, you know, two thirds the length of the fly. Mm-hmm. And so now we have an established pattern. We have something that all three of us are tying. And we're all tying our own variations of them. Even though they're all tied on the same conceptual platform, we're all building our, the basis, the substrate of this fly was exactly the same. Scott ran off in his own little path under sticking to our parameters. They were all, this is how it worked. But Scott went off and did his own thing in different places. Right. He went back down to the North Umpqua and started using this down there and realized how to adjust it accordingly. And Ed and I did the exact same thing. And within that evolution was this, how big a fly can we tie? (laughs) How big a fly will a steelhead eat? Was this mostly out of curiosity now at this point? It was totally. Because we were were curious at really what the limitation was. And of course the limitation, for me, it was casting as much as anything else. You you could only cast these. And both Scott and myself were pushing seven, eight inches oh, total fly. Oh my God. And they're, they'd, they'd still destroy it. Okay. And they'd still destroy it. Now, so what's happening now with the loop though at the back? It's still the same construction. It's okay. exactly the same because what we realized is the bigger these flies got, that it was the more important it was is that we sucked the fly as close up into the body as we could get it. Because if that fly, the hook is, if the stinger hook is hanging way out in the back, and another really negative thing about these super big flies is the bigger they get, make no mistake that the fish attack them by the head. We've got little tiny dumbbell eyes up in the front that appear the thing is swimming forward, and that is the front end. And so we started to get some really funky hookups on the outside of the face, close to uh, the eye. Yeah, got they were it. grabbing the fly sideways and getting hooked in the outside of the face. Yeah, bad, bad. So very bad. So we started to realize, okay, now we need to dial this down. We'd proven the fact that they would eat as big a fly as we could huck. Interesting. And so, but there was also a point where we realized that those giant fish only, those giant flies only appealed to a very small number of fish. 
And Any, yes. did you notice anything on size? Did they appeal to small fish, big it, all fish? All fish. Okay. It was in and, and and I looked at it like I mean I caught a fish the smallest fish, <laughs> I could, literally a six pound probably one salt fish in this gadget that literally destroyed the fly. Mm-hmm. Jumped so many times I couldn't even remember how many jumped. And I mean the the fly was bigger than the fish was back to his pectoral fins. Right. You know, it was enormous. And so, and this fish was poorly hooked too. And it was actually, the hook was going from the outside in. Coming up, Jerry and I speak about how steelhead take flies and if there's such a thing as too big. Again, just a quick thanks to Peak Fishing for all of their support and for making this episode possible. Peak is a small company who cares about their customers and their award-winning products certainly showcase this in their design and price point. Check them out at www.peakfishing.com. Okay, so you guys are ready to make a change. Yeah, we're, we're realizing that now we've gotten too big. Now we're getting to the point where we're starting to sacrifice this awesome hookup position that we're getting out of these fit flies that are roughly three and a half to four inches long. And that's where we stayed. Okay. And so that, and it, it, and it, the the quality hookup ratio went way up. They were always somewhere near the right near the scissors corner of the mouth. Um, they were clean, deep penetrations with very little rotational tearing, so that this was what we wanted to stick with. And so the evolution of that idea, all of us stayed within that, right. and we just blazed off on our own angles. And so we realized that you could tie as big a fly as you wanted, and they were going to eat it, but. Going that big was irresponsible, and it was also a pain in the ass to cast. So dialing that way back down made a lot more sense. And to tie. What a waste of materials. Yeah, it was a ton to tie. And, you know, straightening out those big, long shanks. Yeah, no you know, you're, Yeah, it took forever. And we also got tired of straightening out shanks and all that stuff, so we would just buy three up Bartleet, straighten them out, chop them off. Mm-hmm. And everything ended up that big. You know, they were two and a half, three, four inches max. And that, you know, we would go up to Alaska, and, of course, we'd tie some bigger... We would tie bigger flies on the exact same size shank. That's what we learned is that all we would do is just make the back materials a little bit longer mm-hmm. and leave that hook buried up inside the body of the fly so you are got a good, solid, responsible hookup of where it belonged. Totally. And they worked out great. I used to use bobby pins. That's cool. <laughs> bobby pins. I've heard of all kinds of stuff. Isn't it funny? Bobby pins. Guys, tons of dudes were using spinner wire. That was the big push. Guys were like using spinner wire, and I was like, it's too thin. You know, it was too thin for my junction tube idea. Mm, Right, right, right. And so the whole junction tube connection was we all stuck with that for a really, really long time. But I still think that's a pain in the ass. It is a pain in the ass. So where do you go from here now? Well, I'm just dying to know when the loop comes in. I'm such a dork, but I I need to know when this loop comes in. We never did the loop. The loop came in once the world found out about the intruder. Okay, so yep, you guys we, didn't, didn't bring the loop in. Yep, we did not bring the loop in. The loop, for us, the loop, and I still preach this when I when I do my fly tying demos and classes with people, I use flies that I tie loops. And I lose more fish on those flies because they still have swing weight. The, if the fly's weighted, even though the braided loop or whatever material you use to girth hitch the hook on there, you still have swing weight. Well, let's talk about that because I... I take a swim tank to all my classes and I'm a really big advocate on honesty. As you know, we've spent all day together. Oh, yeah. At this point, you know, I believe in honesty and something that really bothers me um, are materials and flies that are sold in shops 
because they look good on the shelf. It really bothers me. And so I like to bring my tank into my classes, ironically enough, into the shops <laughs> to show people what materials do in fact look good and which ones don't. Right. Same with the flies. And one of the things that's always bothered me is when they have, when, when shops sell the big Dacron loops and these big intruders mm-hmm. and the employee says, well, no, 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 the swing, the swing in the current will straighten it out. Yeah. You know, it will, it, it will straight, cause it's limp, right? Right. The, the Dacron gets limp. Right. And, and so, or the Power Pro gets limp. Right. And the employee says, or the, the shop guy says, well, the, the current will keep it taut. Right. If you straighten will. it out. Right. And so I wanted to show with my swim tank that even, and, and the current natural, you know, yeah. natural current, when you crank it, that limp Dacron still sags. Yeah, it does not, not. It's not hanging straighten. in the zone. It's not hanging in the zone. So when I before I was on tubes, when mm-hmm. I was still tying on shanks, I would use the um, like the non kinkable wire. Right. Yep. Um, and that's the only thing I'll use is the wire. Okay. Yep. Go I on. use the Senu wire for all the my. Yeah, he's dialed it in. Yep. All those loop to loop intruders. Those. That's how I do them because it actually has enough flexibility in it that it'll still it kind of minimizes the swing weight but the swing weight is still there okay it's okay. just like a big hammer throw right so even though it's swinging it's you still have swing leverage and that was the beauty of the original intruder rigging is it popped loose just like a tube fly but did it set the hook too far up in the fly so that you missed hookups no not so much because remember we dialed them down to a size to where they were that they were big enough that they could take the whole fly in we knew that they were still attacking the head yeah and so and 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 how i know this for a fact is and this is a really cool story we ed and i were fishing on the sock one day and this is when we bought our little wolf cats before there were any personal flotation devices we found these boats in the back of a whitewater magazine and the company was called wolf cat and the actual boats were pack boats for the grand canyon so they were really whitewater capable but the boat you could pack the whole thing down it weighed 45 pounds assembled and so Ed and I were like, wow, this thing's really cool. But they were expensive. They were like 1500 bucks back in the 90s. Whoa! Yeah. And they, but what was really cool is they had this Kevlar filament wound inside the outer bladder. So the guy told us, he goes, you can't pop this thing. You cannot pop it. I made it really, really strong so it could take all the abuse that you got in these huge wave trains in the Grand Canyon, smacking into rocks and shit, and pop all these little boats. And so he goes, you could leave this thing in the parking lot in Nevada, and if it blows up, I'll give you a new one. And so with these little cataracts, it gave Ed and I this, this, you know, this access to the river that was just ridiculous. And so... I'm sure everybody loved that. Oh, they hated us. That was the beginning of the whole testosterone thing. It made us... We didn't need a boat launch anymore. Yeah. We could lower our boats off a riprap, bridges in BC. We dropped our boats everywhere. It was really cool. It gave us massive amounts of access. Right. And so once we had those boats... We, you know, we were fishing all over the place. So the sock is going out on us, but this like is it's, March. It's blowing out. It's blowing it's out. It's raining. Yeah. It's, it, it, it rained all night. It rained all day. And Ed and I are in a stretch that we love with all our heart. And it's, it's the stretch Beaver Flats, Big Buck Bend, Jerry's, Long Run, all the stuff that happened after the 2001 flood that we basically got to name it all because the river ran on that side of the valley. So this became all our water. At the point where Ed and I used to float down the river together, now we get to pillage. Yeah. We get to just go, I'm going to go over there and fish this high bank spot. You're going to fish over here. We got to check all these spots out that when you fish together, you were more about getting to the next spot that you knew. Now we're starting to pick the place apart. Well, there used to be this place on the sock that was called Mahoney's. Okay. 
and it was really glorious. It was it was this classic head where the current kind of banged into the bank and then shot back out and went over this beautiful riffle. And the steel head would just poke them. I mean, they'd be literally poked right up into the riffle. And it was a deep little drop-off ripple, you know, like you look at it and go, oh, yeah, they're going to be in there. <laughs> well, the visibility is literally about six inches. And I'm fishing my classic orange and natural ostrich with a, a grizzly hackle wing. It was an orange hackle wing. And this intruder happened to have, it took a very special hackle. It was very rare to find these very limp um, drabs within the feather dusters that had these really short hackle tips on them. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were literally no more than probably about an inch long. And the whole fiber of the feather was really limp. This one fly... I know what you're talking about. It was palmered all the way up the body, so it looked super, super prawny. Uh, it had you just a forward fold, shoulder. Fold it back so that it met. Yep, exactly. So it looked a lot more like a spay fly. It was palmered up the body just yeah. like a spay fly. Just right. palmered right. it all the way forward, just up the tinsel body. And this was a really productive fly for me. I had a fair whack of them in my box. And uh, so the, now remember, we've got six, five inches of visibility. I'm down in the gut. I didn't touch anything at the top. And I was kind of surprised about that because this was one of the better days that Ed and I had ever had. We'd already hit three fish up in long run and decided to divide and conquer. I'm down in the gut of the run. I cast straight across, literally right in the middle of my pullback. I get just destroyed. And this fish is jumping all over on the other side of the river. Now, that fly had landed. It probably sunk that far. That's six, what is that? Maybe six, eight inches. Okay. It had probably sunk that far because literally it landed. As soon as it landed, I did my big pullback. So we're doing the pullback drop down. We just pull it straight back, rod tip vertical, and then slowly drop the rod tip into the swing, creating this big, long, beautiful broadside swing. Mm -hmm. I had cast it across, pulled it back, got destroyed. Fish is jumping all over the place. I land him. I'm just like totally enamored with how hard he ate the fly. I still can't believe how hard he ate it. It gives me chicken skin just thinking about it. (laughs) And... It just goes postal. It reach in his mouth, follow my hand down the leader, and reach in his mouth to get the hook. And the leader stops. It goes through his uh, gill plate. Uh, and I look at him, and the hook is on the outside of his gill plate. It had just punched straight through. God. And it was sticking out. His The hook was out here, and my knot was out here. And then... So I'm like, how in the hell did this happen? I didn't understand it at all. So I quickly just cut the hook off, pulled the leader out. He's not bleeding or anything, which is really cool. And I let him go. And then I realized cutting the hook off my fly, my my fly line had straightened out and my intruder had started to slide off my leader. So I scramble down, I grab my intruder, I get to my intruder and my intruder is bent in a 90 degree angle. Oh, that's strange. He took the entire fly in his mouth. Uh. The entire thing. The force of him clamping down on the fly bent it into a 90 degree angle. Whoa! And punched the hook through his gill plate. That's how hard he ate the thing. That's crazy. It is crazy. And I've never had a fish do it since. But what I realized at that point was is that they're not coming up from behind that thing and grabbing it. They're attacking that thing from the side and they're taking the whole thing in their mouth. And so at that point, I realized that there was a size that you needed to be at where if you were too big, you were going to hook them poorly on the outside or cause them some kind of damage by them taking the fly in their mouth the way they were taking it. 
Now, if you get down to a certain size, right around that three and a half to four inch size, most steelhead can take that whole thing in their mouth. And as you set the hook, the hook just goes into the corner of the mouth and the whole fly pulls through. Hmm. And so now we figured out that there was this ideal size for these ideal hookups and being as fish friendly as possible again, you know, because there were, again, these are our business partners or our best friends at the time. We, neither one of us were really doing any actual steelhead guiding. It was all in Alaska and all we did was fish for steelhead. Right. So, and take buddies. But that was a big point for us. It was a really big point for us. And so that we never approached that five, six inch mark again, unless they were really, really short shanks and the materials compensated for length. It's so nice to hear you say that because after you guys became, you know, after the intruder was popularized, it seems like the industry, not the industry, excuse me, seems like the consumer decided, well, we're going to go ahead and we're just going to make them even bigger. Bigger's better. Yeah. And I've seen flies of absurd lengths come yeah. in. And yeah. I want people to now know that there's a reason why you please do not need to tie flies that big. It and it, it's irresponsible. It is and, irresponsible. And, the, yeah. and through the evolution of that, the next step for me was to, to as a guide, was to create something that was different. That was different. In the sense that it was way, way easier for the average Joe to cast. The intruder will stifle anybody's good time. What did everybody think about this? Oh, <laughs> um, what they thought about it was not good. It was, we, what we were doing is we were stomping on tradition. We had taken all of these hundreds of years of admiring and you know, adoring these patterns of Atlantic salmon and all that stuff. And we scoffed at it. We called it malarkey. We, now we were on something where we actually were appealing to the way these fish really fed. And we believed that we were inducing a conditioned response to feed or attack something that looked like food. You know, we're close to the coast. All our fish are, you know, on the Skagit. Yeah, granted, when you're fishing up by Grant, up by Darrington, you're 90 miles away. But they still, they were close to the coast and we were appealing to these fish. But what we were doing is we were insulting all the years and all the admiration that all of our peers and forefathers had for all this Atlantic salmon lore. Now for us, Atlantic salmon, that's the wrong coast, wrong fish. That's how we felt about it. We're talking about sea run rainbow trout. We're not talking about Atlantic salmon. And the truth is, is I think Atlantic salmon would eat a lot of different shit too. <laughs> I just and think you got to fish for them with different shit. You know, you got to try it to see if they'll eat it. You know, but that our peers were not happy with us. They were they the guys called me a lure tire, and I was proud to be a lure tire. I was because it, I was we were going somewhere new. You know, we'd, we'd done something that no one else had done that was working really good and we were super proud of it. And so it, and all the people that admired us and that we were friends with, we were very quickly being casted out for doing something different. Guys called them small birds, pillows, all kinds of stuff, anything insulting they could say. Most guys didn't even want to look at them. I mean, once, I mean, some guys like the people that were on the edges of our circle that were really enamored with the traditional end of our sport, they knew that we were tying these flies, but they didn't care about them. They, they didn't even see any beauty in them. They were just big, disgusting things to them. Was there any sort of criticism because people felt that they were too efficient? Uh, I, I think it was more just the fact that we were, 
we were just we were scoffing at something that's hundreds and hundreds of years of tested, proven. This is how it works. So at this point in the mentality of, of the fishermen in the West Coast, it's not a matter of oh, those fish, those those flies are catching too many fish. Yeah. Oh no. It's no. a matter of well, listen, Sonny, yeah. that's not how we do it. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. It was just a listen, Sonny. This is not how we do it. And the truth is, is Ed and I never shared any of our success with anyone. We would enter circles and we would just sit back quietly and listen and talk and engage in conversation, but we never talked about the success of the fly. The fly was a secret yeah, for the well, longest time. People could see it flying through the air, but no one actually knew what it looked like in the water. Let's talk about how it became a, uh, a public fly. It, well, it, we kept it a secret, but there were people in our sport that were secretly spying on us from what we understood. And I found out this through um, our regional biologist, Kirk Kramer, said to us, yeah, there's this guy that parks where you guys park, and I've caught him watching you guys fish through the woods. I've so walked creepy. up right behind him. Super creepy. So creepy. And so Ed and I were kind of freaked out by this a little bit, and we're <laughs> like, okay, so these guys are, there's people that are aware of what we're doing. But what we knew is, is that we were way more productive fishing these flies than we ever were before. Right. And so we were on to something. And being on to something and knowing how competitive steelhead fishing is and how important it is to get your water first and fish your water first. <clears throat> and, of course, we're really young, so we're full of all kinds of piss and So vinegar. it's even more competitive. Yeah, way more competitive. And so we were really intense. We were super intense. You couldn't beat us to the river if you tried and all of the guides that were working here were put off by the fact that we were always in the water that they wanted to be in. And so it started to turn into a negative thing for us. And what ended up happening is that I believe that some people in another state had actually caught on to what we were doing and were going to try to take credit for it. And so what happened was, is I'm not, I think it was actually Jerry Gibb had asked Ed if he would write for Field and Stream, I think he was then. And and Ed is like, yeah, sure. And so Ed took it upon himself to make sure that the intruder clan got credit for that fly. And that's so that is why Ed took and wrote the article about it. Okay, so that's how this is now public. Now that's how it became public. There were a few guys, a few fringe dudes that were some of our friends down in Oregon and stuff that we had taken out fishing with us that realized the magic behind the intruder and they had climbed on board like Tucker English did and they started using the flies. Okay. And, and I'm sure that some of those guys showed those flies to some other people. Well, of course. And then, you know, and everybody wants to, everybody wants their place in history. And so someone else tried to take credit for it. Who named it the intruder? I named it the intruder. Now, let's talk a little bit about you. I mean, everybody thinks Ed Ward created the intruder. <laughs> well, and the reason for that was is that I had kind of gotten sick of the blow-up of the sport. I'm a really solitary spirit, and for me, steelhead fishing is my church. That's all there is to it. That's where I get to go away, and nothing in the world exists except for what I'm doing right there, right then. And so, and I'm still that way. It's still my church. It's where I go to meditate. It's where I go to get away from things. I'm never happier than I am if I'm standing knee deep in the river. And so why did Ed get that? And the reason he did is because he decided that he would take, he would write the story because he had the recognition. Deck had wrote a lot about Ed. People knew who Ed was and Ed was. And so Ed's name carried some weight 
And if Ed brought this out, then it was worthy. No right. one was going to read a story written by Jerry French, you know, didn't know who I was, you know, except for our local guys. No one had a clue sure. who I was. And, and, you know, there's, to this day, people were still surprised. So yeah, I, I knew you had something to do with it, but yeah, it was, I mean, the name intruder came from Robbie the robot. The, do you remember the show Lost in Space? Um, no. no. I think I'm 20, almost 20 years younger yeah, than Yeah, so that Lost in Space. There was a character on Lost in Space. It was this family that got cast away on this foreign planet. And they lived out of their spaceship. And they had their pet robot named Robbie the Robot. Okay. Anytime anything went haywire, Robbie the Robot would start swinging his arms around, lights would flash, and he would say, intruder alert, intruder alert, and he would freak out. <laughs> and so Ed and I are sitting up on the Alagnac River. I have a picture of this. The exact moment that this took place is really strange, and I don't even know who took the photo, actually. But we had we were in my cabin. We were tying flies. We were fishing for jacks, jack kings, and we were tying flies that night. This was our second year up there. The intruder, the concept of the intruder is now well on its way. And so we got some ideas of what's, what we're tying. And we're down at the water. We always water tested everything. Yeah. You know, we'd go down. Putting it in a bowl is one thing, but current is entirely it's another. Totally different. Yeah. Not even comparable. So we go huck it in the current and let it go crazy. And I was just like, intruder alert, intruder alert. And Ed and I just busted into laughter. And Ed's like, that's it, dude. That's it. That's what it is. It's the intruder. Oh, you that's know? classic. Okay, yeah. got it. And that was it. That's And so for us, it didn't matter what color it was, how it was tied, as long as it was tied on that conceptual platform, it was an intruder. Got it. You know? Okay. And so then it just carried on from there. And then, of course, it is what it is now. There's all these bastardized variations of giant flies that, I mean, I've seen guys post huge string leeches, giant string, string leech, and call it an intruder. Okay, well, that's <laughs> it's not like, Yeah, that's not right. <laughs> it's like, okay, people, if it's a giant fly, it's not an intruder. It's just a giant fly. You know, If it's tied like an intruder and in the proper stations and proportions, then of course it is an intruder. Now, if we like Scott and Hal and I had had this conversation and debate, Scott believed that the original, what would be considered a true intruder because we didn't agree with the stinger loop, the girth hitched loop, right? Uh What Scott considers to be the true intruder is the speaker wire junction connection. Okay. So you eliminate all the swing weight. That is the true intruder. And I agree with him. The true intruder concept is it's rock solid from start to finish from end to end. It has function, purpose, and reason. And so you start to get in these gigantic flies. And the biggest problem I have with the way things are going now is that when I look at people's intruders and I see a three inch long hook loop, that is what's wrong with the concept well, of all Well, they tongue hook the fish. Absolutely. Or they hook them on the outside of the face. Yeah, yeah. yeah which which defeats the entire purpose yeah, of all they, this research you put yeah, into it. you don't have to. They're not back there nibbling on the ends, boys, uh-huh. people. They're not. They're taking those bad boys by the head, you know. And if they're eating them from the back, they're dour, and I don't want to fish for them anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? I want to fly that. I want a fish that's committed. I want players. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the right now then. Let's let's speed up a bit and go to right now. So, I mean, you and I have done so much talking today. So I I, I know some of this might be rehashing for you, Whatever. but 
Uh, I was explaining to you my timeline with the intruder and, you know, Mm -hmm. and and how it all started. And and this isn't about me, so I'm just going to go ahead and and move forward to... Well, no, I kind of want to go head-to-head with you on a couple of things. Sure. I don't want to... I don't want... It's not an argument. I'm just genuinely curious about some stuff. For me, it was was one of those things where when I was 21 years old on the Thompson, we all fished these... um, these big, large flies. And now that I know this story, I'm going to say, yes, they were intruders. Mm-hmm. I didn't know they were called intruders. I, 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 I mean, eventually we found out they were intruders, but mm-hmm. to me, they were just these big, large flies right. that were, you know, that obviously caught a lot of fish. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is we, we all are catching way more fish than we used to on the smaller flies. Mm-hmm. But then it kind of picked up. I mean, in the industry, it felt like everybody was fishing these huge flies and so it was inevitable that I would start to fish smaller flies yep. because everyone was fishing the same damn thing. Yep. And, uh, and that's what the benefit was is that in one time it was, there were very few people that was, it was a rarity swinging through the column was that giant fly. Right. A yeah. rarity. Exactly. And then it became a standard. It's, it is yep. very much a standard. Yep. When people see me fishing a smaller fly, they look at me strange. Yeah, it's like, what are you doing with that? <laughs> yeah. Do you have confidence in that thing? <laughs> and I just wonder, I mean, but you still fish big flies, yeah? I do, but I've realized that really big isn't as good as we thought it was. You know, there's, there's definitely a size, like going back to the snack pack comment. Mm, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, it appeals to way more fish to go put your mouth on or attack something that's smaller. Totally. Yeah. And, and see, so for me, I've always done steppers. So I did one step. So you call him, you called them, um, stations. stations. So yeah. I would, I would either tie one station or two stations. Right. And then I eventually realized, well, cause I'm obviously a tube fly fan and we'll talk about that in a moment too, but I would tie just a whole bunch of one station tubes. And then if the water was murky or I needed to have a big fly, I would just slide two on. I mean, it was simple. I could change the colors. If I was in, if I was in in an interior stream, I put on a black and blue. If I went down to a, you know, maybe the coastal stream, I'd take off the black. I'd put on a pink and I got a pink and blue. I see a chartreuse. I mean, I see a, a Chinook roll. I put on a chartreuse. And blue, and I could just mix and match colors, sizes. I see bull trout, I slide on three. I want a one-odd, I put on a one-odd. I need a size four, I put on a four. I just saw all these options. Mm -hmm. But with the intruder, are you stuck in a big fly? There's still this, there's still the fact that a too big a fly only appeals to a certain number of fish. Mm. And so... What, what I think is really cool about the true, the coolest thing about the intruder is not the fly itself. It's the effect it had on everybody else. It's <laughs> you mean the, the people? Yeah. It's, <laughs> yes. the, it's the Pandora's box of creativity that was opened up when people realized that it's not all about a pattern in a book and the embossed tinsel, whether it's in front of the, in your beautiful flat tinsel. It was more about just opening your head and tying these creative things. The evolution of your stack tubes. All of that is an effect of the intruder. It is. That is the best part of the whole thing is that it opened up people's perspectives and took them out of the pattern pages and allowed them to just freely go do whatever they wanted and know that it's okay to do that and that it's actually going to work. And you know what's so funny about this? I, I did a blog post the other day on stackers. 
or stations, if you will. Uh-huh. And, well, stacker of single stations. Right. It's <laughs> so, awesome. I love that concept. But it's, so it's here's... Efficient. It is efficient. It's efficient. It's it's easy. And so I Googled intruder, like the actual intruder pattern, Uh because I wanted to include it on my blog post. I couldn't find an actual picture of an an intruder. They were all different. Yep. So that's why. Yep. That's why. That's why. Because it's a plat. What did you call it? You call it a conceptual platform. A conceptual platform and not an actual pattern. Yep. It's not a pattern. And anybody who talked about the pattern, it's not a pattern. It's a concept. It's a conceptual platform. And the idea was that within that platform, you've created this large, gigantic profile with the ability to eliminate all the leverage and use a responsible hook. Mm. And that was the conceptual platform of the intruder. You could tie this enormous out-of-proportion fly and use a responsible-sized hook where all the leverage would be removed. And then you could actually land these fish that you're hooking on these large, giant, wonderful flies and not do a whole bunch of damage to them, okay. you know? And so it was, but again, once I saw, for me, the proudest part is the effect that I've had on all these other tires, the things that I see people come up with now. And I mean, just everywhere. I mean, all over the place. Now I'm feeding off of people who, admire my fly tie, my tying. I'm feeding off of things they do because I'm seeing things that I find are really cool. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Tune in next time for part two of my discussion with Jerry. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.